All right, Nick, so it's July again, which is a very exciting time because we know that this means that there are new incoming residents to uh, OBGYN. Absolutely. Brand new faces. Welcome to labor and delivery. Welcome to the oncology floor. Welcome to the clinic, wherever you are. We hope that you're getting welcomed into OBGYN, and we want to make sure that you know about a great resource in OBG First and the OBG Core. So the OBG core, as many of your senior residents will tell you, is absolutely free to all residents. So we wanted to make sure that you know about that. And then also, again, you also will get access for free if you are a resident to OBG first, as well as the labor and delivery book from the OBG project. There are tons and tons of great resources through the OBG project. You can find them on their website at obgproject.com. But if you're interested in getting signed up for this premium product of theirs for absolutely free for all four years of residency, head over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and get signed up today. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs. Over coffee. All right, so today we're going to be going back and doing another episode on some of those important trials that all OBGYN residents should know. So today we're going to talk about the CLASP trial. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? Yeah, so we're going to review the CLASP trial, yet another trial we think all OBGYN residents need to be familiar with. We're going to understand, again, the reasons behind why we do what we do, and in this case, it's going to be kind of why do we give aspirin, um, or why do we recommend aspirin. And then finally, we're going to review some follow-up in terms of what's changed and how we practice now um, on the basis of this trial. So you mentioned, Faye, CLASP, a randomized trial of low-dose aspirin for the prevention and treatment of preeclampsia among 9,364 pregnant women. CLASP sounds much catchier than that. Um, So give us kind of the background on where CLASP came from and what it was about. Sure. So um, just some background. So, you know, who did the study, who published it? Uh, CLAPS stands for the Collaborative Low-Dose Aspirin Study in Pregnancy Collaborative Group. Um, The coordinating center was located in Oxford, UK. So this is a British study overall, but there were multiple centers in the UK as well as around the world that participated. Um, And it was published in The Lancet in 1994. So it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. Um, In terms of why the study was done, so as we know, Preeclampsia is a serious condition. It can lead to both maternal and fetal morbidity and mortality. That hasn't changed since the 1990s. Um, Specifically, it can also cause fetal growth restriction and neonatal demise due to uh, delivery and prematurity, as well as um, dysfunction of the placenta itself. And so those that did the study hypothesized that preeclampsia and potentially fetal growth restriction is due to some structural and occlusive changes in the spiral arteries of the placenta that can then affect uteroplacental circulation. And so if there's some way to prevent preeclampsia, this can also potentially prevent some cases of fetal growth restriction. And then they also thought that preeclampsia, which was associated with deficient intravascular production of prostacyclin and excessive production of thromboxane, could potentially be modified by taking aspirin because aspirin can modify these pathways. So low-dose aspirin might help by blocking thromboxane um, or TXA2 production. 
The research question that they ultimately had was, can the use of low-dose aspirin in pregnancy decrease fetal and neonatal morbidity and mortality in those at high risk of developing severe preeclampsia or fetal growth restriction? All right. So that's kind of the background for the study, Nick. So let's now go ahead and talk about the methods. So who participated in the study? How was it done? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so as you mentioned, Faye, this was a worldwide study. It was conducted in 213 centers in 16 countries over a five-year period from January 1988 to December 1992. So if you were born internationally, perhaps you were in this trial if you're listening to the podcast. Um, But in terms of inclusion criteria, um, you needed to be between 12 and 32 weeks of gestation to be enrolled, and then there needed to be documented sufficient risk of preeclampsia or fetal growth restriction as deemed by the opinion of the responsible clinician. But there wasn't really a clear indication for or against low-dose aspirin otherwise. There was really two groups that they divided this inclusion of risk into. One that was the prophylactic entry group. So these were patients who had a history of preeclampsia or growth restriction in a prior pregnancy, they had chronic hypertension, renal disease, or some other risk factors like maternal age, a family history, or multiple pregnancy that could contribute. And then finally, there was the therapeutic entry group. So this is actually was a subgroup of patients of who actually had signs or symptoms of preeclampsia or growth restriction in their present pregnancy, who then got enrolled onto aspirin. Exclusion criteria included any sort of increased risk of bleeding, any history of asthma, any allergy to aspirin, and then any high likelihood of imminent delivery. This was a randomized controlled trial, ultimately, in terms of how it was done, and kind of hearkening back to some old-school methodology here, staff would call a central 24-hour service telephone line at the Clinical Trial Service Unit at Oxford University, and then a computer then would randomize folks to get a specific trial treatment pack, either containing aspirin or placebo tablets. There was an algorithm, a minimization algorithm specifically, that was used to limit the differences between treatment groups for certain prognostic baseline variables. So again, trying to keep them as equal as possible given sort of the heterogeneous inclusion criteria. And the treatment actually was either with 60 milligrams of aspirin daily or a matching placebo tablet. This, you might think, is an interesting choice, and you're right. Um, This is a pretty low dose considering that we use 81 milligrams here in the United States and the current low-dose aspirin widely available across the European Union is actually 150 milligrams, but more on that later. Follow-up for this trial really was conducted with a single-page follow-up form that was completed after hospital discharge of both the mother and the baby, or at a six-week postpartum point if either had not been discharged from the hospital by then. Um, They also looked at compliance with study treatment, ultimately. They looked at the use of antihypertensives or other anticonvulsant drugs. Remember, this all occurred in the period before magnesium, so kind of there is a little bit of heterogeneous effect there. Um, They looked at major events that occurred after randomization, so particularly looking at diagnosis of preeclampsia, um, a fetal loss, or a concern for maternal or neonatal bleeding. And then they also captured things like birth status, the vital status of the baby, and certain neonatal complications. All right. So 
that's a lot of stuff that they were ultimately looking at Faye and how they contributed to the study. But what exactly were they looking for in this randomized trial? Yeah, so they actually had a lot of main outcomes, and I couldn't really find exactly what was their primary outcome versus secondary outcome. So their list of main outcomes were, one, development of proteinuric preeclampsia. And again, remember, these are terms from the 1990s, so we'll talk a little bit about what that means in just a second. They also looked at estimated duration of pregnancy, crude birth weight, birth weight less than the third percentile for sex and gestational age. They also looked at stillbirth or neonatal death due to preeclampsia or maternal hypertension or associated with IUGR or ascribed to maternal or neonatal bleeding. And then they also looked at death of the baby at any time attributed to preeclampsia, maternal hypertension, or IUGR. So these were kind of a list of main outcomes that they were looking at. So again, like I said, remember this was 1994, so the definition of preeclampsia in this paper is a little bit different than how we would define preeclampsia today. So they define proteinuric preeclampsia as for those with a baseline diastolic pressure of less than 90 millimeters of mercury, hypertension was defined as a rise of at least 25 millimeters of mercury to 90 or higher. And for those with an initial diastolic pressure of 90 or higher, an increment of at least 15 millimeters of mercury was required. And then in terms of proteinuria, they define this as the appearance after randomization of at least one plus protein on protein stick testing during pregnancy without any evidence of a urinary tract infection. So again, definitely different from how we would describe preeclampsia and how we would define preeclampsia today. They also defined fetal growth restriction, or in this case, the term that was used is intrauterine growth restriction, because again, it's the 1990s, um, a little bit differently than we would today. So they specifically defined IUGR as a birth weight of less than third percentile for sex and estimated gestational maturity. Um, and then of course, preterm delivery, they defined as before 37 weeks. The other outcomes that they were looking at, um, they looked at comparisons regarding parity. So if this was a first-time mom versus moms that have had one or more previous deliveries. Um, they also looked at things like prophylactic use according to time of entry. So if they were less than or greater than 20 weeks, they, they uh, analyzed this separately. And then they also looked at therapeutic use group according to time of entry, either less than 28 weeks or greater than 28 weeks and compared these two groups. In terms of the statistics of what they did, so they wanted to be able to detect a decrease of a quarter in incidence of proteinuric preeclampsia, an increase of 100 grams in mean birth weight, and then an increase of at least one day of mean duration of gestation. And so based off of this, they initially wanted 4,000 women for the study, but because this sample size couldn't detect differences in rate of stillbirth and neonatal death, ultimately they ended up deciding to include 10,000 subjects in their actual study. All right, so now that we've kind of gone through all of that, Nick, let's kind of talk about their results. So who do they recruit and what were their outcomes? Yeah, so ultimately, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, they were able to successfully recruit 9,364 women to randomization, or a little over 4,600, close to 4,700 in each arm. The 74% were in the prophylaxis group, and then 12% of those were in prophylaxis for growth restriction alone. And then 11% were in for treatment of preeclampsia and 3% for treatment of growth restriction alone. So again, we really had over 85% of the trial involved for that 
prophylaxis arm with 75% of it specifically being prophylaxis for preeclampsia. Some other interesting characteristics, 62% of patients were enrolled at 20 weeks gestation or earlier. 2% of them had already developed preeclampsia. So again, there was that. Um, and then 28% of the trial participants were primogravidas, so first time, first time pregnant patients. Post-delivery follow-up forms were obtained for 9,309 patients, or 99.4%, so really remarkable follow-up for what they attempted to do. Um, and then in terms of compliance or adherence to treatments, they were able to obtain information on 8,915 randomized patients. 96% of them started the medication. 66% continued the treatment for 95% of the time, and 88% continued for 80% of the time between randomization and delivery. So honestly, pretty good. No, I don't know if you've ever had to take a daily pill, but it's yeah. hard to take a daily pill. Absolutely. Um, and so kind of getting it in 88% of the time, or 88% getting 80% compliance, honestly, is pretty good for something that for most of the people in this study were prophylaxing with it, not necessarily treating something. Now, in terms of outcomes, there are a ton of findings in this results section. So really, we encourage you, if you're interested and intrigued by the history in this trial, to dive into the paper itself. But we're going to just kind of spend some time on some main outcomes. First, we'll talk about preeclampsia. 6.7% um, of women on aspirin had preeclampsia compared to 7.6% of those with placebo. This amounts to about a 12% risk reduction. That didn't come out to be statistically significant. And there was no difference when you look specifically at patients who entered versus for prophylactic versus therapeutic reasons. The effect was greater, though, amongst patients who entered for prophylaxis at 20 weeks gestation or earlier, and this actually was a 22% reduction in preeclampsia overall, and that was statistically significant. And when you looked at those that delivered earlier, interestingly enough, there was a progressively greater reduction in preeclampsia with aspirin use. So we'll have sort of this table up on the website um, that kind of shows exactly what the odds ratio is for this proteinuric preeclampsia by gestational age. We'll have a forest plot on the website that talks a bit more about sort of the gestational age of delivery and the number of events of proteinuric preeclampsia that shows favoritism towards aspirin for these particular gestational ages. Um, Faye, what about some other outcomes beyond preeclampsia that they evaluated? So the other things, remember, that they looked at were duration of pregnancy and birth weight and things like that. So the average duration of pregnancy was actually one day longer among aspirin-allocated um, patients than the placebo-allocated patients. So it was 38.15 weeks versus 37.99 weeks, and their p-value was 0 0.05. Um, so this was potentially statistically significant, but is that really clinically significant? I think that's a question that we can certainly talk about. Um, the aspirin, however, did reduce the likelihood of delivery before 37 weeks, um, where it was 19.7% in the aspirin-allocated group versus 22.2% um, in the placebo-allocated group. And again, this was statistically significant with a p-value of 0 0.003. 
And it seemed to be that in the prophylactic group, uh, there were also fewer overall preterm deliveries. So basically, um, it was two fewer preterm deliveries out of 100 women allocated to the aspirin group. And then in the um, therapeutic group, there was also a benefit where there was about five fewer preterm deliveries out of 100 women allocated to that aspirin group. In terms of birth weight, the aspirin group had babies that were on average about 32 grams greater with a p-value of 0.05. And then there was a slightly smaller proportion of babies with IUGR in the aspirin group, but this was not statistically significantly different. Um, Interestingly, among the patients who entered for therapeutic reasons, aspirin seemed to have a discrepant effect with increased incidence of fetal growth restriction among those that entered at 28 weeks or earlier and a decreased incidence among those that entered later. Um, I'm not really sure how to interpret that data, Nick, given that, you know, this was definitely a very small proportion of the patients. And then finally, in terms of stillbirth, um, there was no statistically significant difference between the two groups where it was 2.7% of stillbirth and neonatal deaths in the aspirin group versus 2.8% in the placebo group. And finally, in terms of safety, there was no significant difference in fetal or neonatal deaths attributed to hemorrhage, and intraventricular hemorrhage rates were not different in the two groups. All right, so these are the main findings. And again, Nick, like I said, they had a ton of findings that I don't think we can actually, you know, finish in our 20, 25-minute podcast. But based off of this, what were some of the impacts and conclusions that we got from the study? Absolutely. So to start off with just conclusions from this study, no, I think one of the first things that they note is that the impact of aspirin on preeclampsia and fetal sequelae um, were kind of smaller than what was previously thought. And so it was a little disappointing, frankly, um, that aspirin didn't have a bigger impact. And then they also noted, too, that potentially an important effect of aspirin could be discerned with prevention or delay of delivery with early onset preeclampsia. So kind of again, seeing that if aspirin may actually help with preeclampsia and specifically early onset preeclampsia when started. In terms of how we practice now, um, I feel like this was a kickoff trial in a lot of ways for how we practice today. We're using aspirin, it seems like, for almost everything, or questioning the effect of aspirin for everything nowadays. And this study, groundbreaking at the time, was done almost 30 years ago now. Um, Aspirin has a good mechanism, potentially, to decrease preeclampsia development, but may need to be used earlier in pregnancy. As we stated before, the hypothesis here is that preeclampsia might be associated with certain vascular disturbances and coagulation defects resulting from an imbalance in prostacyclin and thromboxane 2s. Um, And until recently, this hasn't really been borne out in the data, but another trial that probably is worth thinking and looking towards in 2017, the Aspirin for Evidence-Based Preeclampsia Prevention Trial, or ASPRI trial, randomized over 1,700 patients and was based on first trimester screening algorithms using 150 milligrams of aspirin versus placebo and found a statistically significant decrease in the rate of preterm preeclampsia, about 4% versus 1.5%, or an odds ratio of 0.38. Again, really, this ultimately kind of helps bear out some of those findings from this trial, the CLASP trial, in that seeing that aspirin started earlier may have a more significant impact. 
A meta-analysis in 2014 from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guideline pooled data from 15 different high-quality randomized trials and demonstrated likely a 24% reduction in preeclampsia with low-dose aspirin prophylaxis at varying doses of 60 to 150 milligrams a day. So, Faye, kind of really, we did not do justice to the debate and the significant amount of data that lives in this realm of aspirin and preeclampsia prophylaxis. But knowing that we've glossed over it here a bit, what ultimately are the actual recommendations now? And what are the lingering questions with respect to preeclampsia prevention in aspirin? Sure. So, Based on the data from the USPSTF guidelines, in low-risk groups where the disease prevalence of preeclampsia is 2%, um, if we suggested low-dose aspirin, the number needed to treat to prevent one case of preeclampsia is going to be a 500. So ultimately, you know, in that low-risk group, there's still not a recommendation to start baby aspirin. Um, compared to a high-risk group with, where the disease prevalence of preeclampsia is 20%, the number needed to treat significantly goes down to 50. So currently, the USPSTF guideline recommends giving low-dose aspirin after 12 weeks and ideally before 16 weeks gestation to patients with an absolute risk of preeclampsia of at least 8%. And ACOG also agrees with this recommendation and has a list of guidelines, which we won't list here just because it's so long, regarding who meets criteria for aspirin prophylaxis. Um, we certainly can post this on the website. So basically, the recommendation is if you meet one high-risk criteria or two medium-risk criteria, um, then you would be recommended for daily baby aspirin. There are still a lot of lingering questions here though, right? Because again, the CLAPS trial used 60 milligrams of baby aspirin. Currently in the United States, we have 81 milligrams for baby aspirin. And then in the EU, um, their low-dose aspirin is considered to be 150 milligrams. So really, which one is the best? Um, and that's a question that we don't actually know because there hasn't been a head-to-head -head comparison between these doses to see which is best at preventing preeclampsia. And so ACOG has kind of come out and said that, you know, there's no guidelines to say that we necessarily can recommend one over the other. Um, and we should be still using the one that we have available to us, which is 81 milligrams in the United States. There's also some questions about, you know, can aspirin prevent other things like stillbirth and fetal growth restriction? And currently there, there's still insufficient evidence um, as there have been only a few studies that have solely looked at only stillbirth or at only fetal growth restriction. A lot of times this data is going to be mixed in with the preeclampsia data in the same way that the CLASP trial has done. And then the last question, of course, is preterm birth. Can aspirin prevent preterm birth? And I think the answer to this is, is maybe, because there is some good data that is coming out in the last few years. So I would encourage our listeners to stay tuned. Um, there isn't a formal recommendation specifically for preterm labor at this time, but I think the data that's coming out is very exciting. All right, so I think that brings us to the end of this episode, Nick, um, about the CLASP trial, which was definitely groundbreaking at the time and kind of gives us a better understanding about aspirin and why we use it. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogiver Coffee.
So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreeObserverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreeObserverCoffee. And if you want to donate to the show, you can go ahead and go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreeObserverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes, as well as that Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And if you want to give us a suggestion, a correction for the show, or just want to say hi to us, go ahead and email us at careersovercoffee at gmail.com.